Great. Thank you, Danielle, for that. And, and uh, welcome to everyone who's uh, joining us. This is a, a bit of a new format for me. So uh, please, please bear with us as we um, work through um, this new, uh, new type of uh, BBA uh, presentation event. Um, so we're going to talk to you today about the um, money market funds, sort of what they've been through uh, in the recent um, uh, past, uh, you know, in the last month, uh, what we have looking forward, um, and sort of the, the steps that have been taken um, uh, in this period. Um, next slide, please. So as the uh, coronavirus pandemic has um, really put a stress on our markets and um, the global economy, um, money market funds have faced a lot of challenges um, and assets, they've seen assets shift from their prime money market funds to government money market funds. And, you know, this prompted sales of commercial paper into uh, already stressed markets. Um, as a result of this, regulators uh, took swift emergency action in order to provide much needed liquidity uh, along with no action relief. Um, and you saw advisors and sponsors of money market funds um, stepping in as necessary to help support money market funds during a very stressed period um, in March. Then following the Fed's recent um, interest rate cuts, um, advisors are now facing um, challenges to managing money market funds going forward um, and preventing negative yields uh, in the future marketplace. Next slide, please. So I think to understand what's going on now, um, we really need to stay, take a step back to uh, what we call the, the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis of 2008 where much of what uh, we are dealing with now, uh, as far as emergency actions and relief, we saw, first saw um, during that 2008 um, crisis. Um, as you'll recall, on September 16th of 2008, the reserve uh, primary uh, money market fund broke the buck. Um, and just as a reminder, when it, um, you break the buck is when uh, the NAV of uh, a money market fund falls below uh, $1. And this happens when investment income doesn't cover uh, the fund's operating expenses or uh, significant investment losses, which is what happened to the reserve uh, money fund. It had significant um, losses on, on certain paper it was holding. So with that there was a real concern that there would be a run on money market funds and that could potentially be a huge um, uh, stress to the uh, economy uh, uh, overall. So the Fed and Treasury stepped in um, almost immediately to take actions in order to um, ensure that the markets uh, would continue to function uh, in an uh, ordinary course. Um, they created several programs that um, impacted the money market fund uh, industry. Um, the first was a commercial paper funding facility. Um, this came out of the New York Fed. Um, it essentially um, provided liquidity to um, US issuers of commercial paper. Um, it essentially worked as a liquidity backstop to those um, CP issuers who are registered with the New York Fed. Um, these were done through a series of different SPVs or special purpose vehicles. Um, and this was important because um, money market funds um, are significant purchasers of commercial paper. But during that period of time, um, money funds,
Ones got uh, a bit spooked from um, uh, buying more commercial paper uh, with concerns that that commercial paper would no longer be liquid. Um, and so when the Fed stepped in with these programs, essentially provided a backstop uh, to, uh, to, that, to those markets. Um, similarly, there was uh, the asset-backed commercial paper money market fund liquidity facility was created. Um, this, again, was a lending program uh, from the Fed, um, and it allowed financial institutions to purchase asset-backed commercial paper uh, from, from money market funds, uh, creating liquidity um, in those markets. So in other words, it gave, gave a place where money funds could um, uh, dispose of their commercial paper they're holding. Um, the Fed also created the Money Market Investor Funding Facility. Um, this again was a um, financial entity that the Fed created to raise the liquidity available um, for money market fund investments. Um, essentially through a series of uh, special purpose vehicles, uh, the Fed purchased up to $600 billion in short-term um, paper, including um, from, from money market funds. So another uh, important uh, feature to, to keep the markets uh, liquid at that time. Finally, they, Fed created, or excuse me, Treasury created um, this temporary guarantee program for money market funds. Um, and this Treasury program guaranteed the share price um, of any publicly offered money market fund um, that applied to the program and paid a fee to participate in that program. The guarantee um, would be triggered if the NAV of a participating fund uh, fell below uh, 0.995. So in other words, it, was, uh, it would break the buck. It would guarantee that, that minimum price. Um, so that was an important sort of bridge uh, during this period uh, to keep uh, investors um, uh, confident in uh, the money market fund um, uh, industry. Uh, next slide, please. So, the fallout from the, the GFC and the programs that the Fed and Treasury uh, put in place um, was a real push then for money market fund reform, quote unquote reform. Um, and this uh, you know, prompted the SEC to take a look at, well, what are the rules and, and regulations around money market funds? Um, are there rules uh, it, that we could have had in place that would have, um, you know, prevented or maybe shored up um, the, the money funds when the GFC happened? So as a result of that, uh, that process, uh, you know, six years and two phases it took to complete. So between 2008, the final rules were adopted in, in 2014. Um, there was wrought with a lot of controversy. Um, there was significant opposition and lobbying from various um, industry players around these reforms. Um, but we did end up with you know, sort of two phases of, of rules uh, adopted to address uh, money market funds. Um, the first uh, phase was in 2010 and basically hit upon sort of uh, you know, four key areas. Uh, the first was portfolio quality and maturity. Um, second was portfolio liquidity, um, and then enhanced disclosures. Um, also adopted uh, were uh, two new rules that um, uh, really impacted the, the money funds as well. The first was Rule 22E3, 
which exempted uh, money market funds from Section 22E, which is the seven-day redemptions, to permit uh, money funds to suspend redemptions um, in order to conduct an orderly liquidation. So in other words, you know, if a money fund was under stress such that it was going to need to liquidate, um, the, uh, the board could suspend redemptions um, on that fund um, in order to allow all investors to get out in an orderly manner. Um, it, uh, 2010, we also saw the adoption of Rule 17A9, um, and this allowed uh, affiliates of the money market fund, the sponsor, um, a parent entity, uh, the advisor of the money fund to purchase distressed securities um, out of that money market fund. So um, these were important uh, new tools um, that money funds had uh, to address uh, stressed market situations. 2014 uh, amendments to 2A7 were sort of the most uh, significant structural changes um, to money market funds um, that we'd ever seen. Um, these 2014 amendments created uh, new categories uh, of money funds. Previously, there was just one type of money market fund. Um, you might have different uh, assets in which they invested or different uh, types of uh, paper that they would invest, but all 2A7 money funds were money funds. Um, now uh, we have retail um, money funds, we have institutional money funds, and we have government uh, money funds. Um, the 2014 amendments required that all non-government money market funds were required to impose liquidity fees or redemption gates um, in the event that weekly liquid assets, and that's a defined uh, term in, the, in 2A7, if weekly liquid assets fall below 30% um, and the fund's board determines um, that it's in the best interest to impose a liquidity fee or a redemption gate. Um, gates, uh, the redemption gates temporarily suspend redemptions. Um, they get lifted uh, once weekly liquid assets rise above 30% um, or after 10 days. Um, and liquidity fees um, can be imposed on, uh, of up to 2%. Uh, next slide, please. So that brings us to um, our current uh, crisis for, um, uh, that we're dealing with now. So as the impact to businesses and the global economy as a result of the coronavirus became clearer starting in early March, um, money market funds were starting to experience liquidity concerns as investors started to pull their money out of prime money market funds and move those into government money market funds. As the redemption requests in uh, prime funds were building, this put a significant strain on the commercial paper markets and prime funds were edging ever closer to that 30% weekly liquid asset level, which would uh, trigger a board determination as to whether to impose liquidity fees or redemption gates. Um, in fact, we're aware that um, at least one um, fund did hit that 30% weekly liquid asset limit. Um, but the um, board determined not to uh, impose liquidity fees or redemption gates at that time uh, because they knew that the Fed's uh, money market fund liquidity facility, which John Luke will talk about, um, was coming online um, and would provide the, the liquidity needed to, to get above that 30% um, weekly liquid asset level. Um, 
all this time during this uh, period of time in March um, at the beginning, um, the SEC staff was holding um, daily calls with um, major money market fund sponsors, um, helping uh, to monitor uh, the liquidity um, of the money market funds and working with the industry to issue emergency action um, targeted to sp the specific needs of the money uh, fund industry. And so you saw very quickly uh, in March as the markets started to um, get compressed, um, that the uh, that the Fed and the SEC were very quick to to react, um, and so I think um, that you know we'll see when John Luke will speak about this. But many of those same programs that we saw in two thousand eight um, were revived um, in a very very quickly in order to address these markets. Um, you know, I think we'll, we'll, John Luke will talk about a little bit more uh, about this, but you know, the form NCR filings, which previously had been sort of these nominal filings made in connection with, um, you know, fund mergers, um, now we're becoming more regular as an indication of, of financial support that um, affiliates were providing. So I think with that background, um, I'm going to turn it over to John Luke, and he's going to uh, discuss some of the specific measures that um, that the Fed took and that the SEC took in order to um, uh, to react to the market. So, John Luke. Thank you, Claire. Um, now, Claire spoke about what regulators have have done in the past in 2008 and really the years following. Um, but what have regulators done now? And I think that they've largely pulled from their 2008 playbooks. Um, they swiftly instituted a commercial paper funding facility similar to the, the 2008 facility uh, in which uh, there was Fed funding of a, of a special purpose vehicle that purchased commercial paper directly. Um, and this is often described as a liquidity backstop um, which facilitates the new issuance of commercial paper. So it, it kept the commercial paper market flowing. Um, in addition, um, there was the institution of a money market mutual fund liquidity facility. And despite having a different name, this is very similar to the asset-backed commercial paper uh, money market fund liquidity facility of 2008. So this facility um, provides liquidity um, to money market funds by the, the Boston Federal Reserve Bank actually making non-recourse loans uh, to banks and other entities to fund the purchase of commercial paper uh, from eligible money market funds. Uh, and initially, uh, when the first term sheets came out, that, that was only, uh, it was limited to prime uh, money market funds, but they subsequently expanded that to include uh, other eligible uh, money market funds, including municipal funds, uh, in which the commercial paper would be actually uh, utilized as collateral uh, for those loans. Um, in addition, the SEC stepped in and um, issued a no action letter to the ICI um, to facilitate 17A9 purchases. Uh, so Claire indicated that um, 17A9 is really the purchase of an asset uh, by an affiliate um, and typically that those were happening in distressed security situations 
But in this instance, we obviously had a, uh, a glut of commercial paper uh, and uh, there was a need for, to, to create liquidity there. Um, and what the SEC did in issuing this no action letter is they facilitated those purchases um, by you know, a, a allowing these affiliated transactions to happen. Now that would be normally allowed for under the 1940 Act and otherwise just simply require notice uh, filing under form NCR as a form of financial support. Um, but there was actually um, certain bank regulations that might otherwise prohibit uh, the purchase of, of those assets. And the Board of Governors of the Fed actually issued an exemption by changing the definition of a covered transaction to not include the purchase of assets from an affiliated money market fund. Um, and, you know, we saw, at, you know, in the, in the days following, um, you know, this, this kind of, uh, kind of pinch in the commercial paper market, uh, a number of N form NCR filings that indicated uh, that there were purchases by affiliated banks of commercial paper assets, large purchases, uh, and the, N the form NCR indicated that they occurred, um, that they were purchased by an affiliated bank, and actually that they were relying upon this particular no action relief provided by the ICI. Um, next slide, please. So uh, in, terms of, in terms of other items, uh, you know, the board may be called, uh, called upon to review uh, different measures, uh, which include, um, you know, financial support. So, you know, as Claire indicated, the 2014 amendments, um, you know, make the provision of financial support a reportable event. And as I just indicated, um, we've been seeing, uh, you know, uh, NCRs filed, uh, you know, to report uh, 17A9 affiliated purchase transactions. Um, we're seeing them uh, in relation to uh, capital contributions that are, have been made to certain funds that may have had a, um, a, a deviation in, uh, it, from NAV. Um, and they're also, uh, you know, popping up in, in, in various situations, um, you know, where financial support is actually provided to the funds. Now, pr prior to the, I guess, the last few months, the only times we've been really seeing a form NCR filing is in relation to uh, a liquidation of a fund in which a topping up occurs or in the reorgani reorganization of money market funds where a topping up occurs just prior to uh, that reorganization taking place. So now there, there's, there are more reportable events uh, that are occurring um, you know, from time to time. One item uh, that we haven't seen necessarily reported, but, but it warrants some consideration is with respect to waivers. Now the final uh, 2014 rules and form NCR provide for the provision uh, by the advisor or affiliates of routine waivers uh, and reimbursement of expenses. But to the extent that that waiver is reasonably intended to increase or stabilize the value or liquidity of the fund's portfolio, 
there, there raises some question of whether this is a reportable financial support transaction. Um, other NCRs that we saw uh, were deviations between the current NAV and, and stable NAV. So that would require an NCR filing to the extent that there was um, a deviation of a quarter of a 1% um, of, of that NAV. Um, in addition, um, there could be an NCR that's filed in connection with um, the, the liquidity assets falling below certain levels. So fees and gates, uh, to the extent that they are triggered or instituted, would require uh, the, the filing of a, of a form NCR. Uh, and as Claire indicated, to the extent that they dip below 30% um, weekly liquid assets, the fund may impose a, a redemption fee or a gate. To the extent that they do dip below 10%, the board must impose uh, a 1% fee unless they determine that it's not in the fund's best interests. Um, and with that, uh, I might turn it over to Claire uh, to discuss, um, you know, some of the advisor's attempts uh, to maintain a positive yield and to avoid a negative yield. Unmute myself there. Um, can I get the next slide, please? Uh, and one more. Next, great, great, thank you. Um, so, I, as we sort of move into this new environment, um, where you know, I think we can you know foresee prolonged um, low, uh, very low, zero uh, level uh, interest rates. Um, that directly impacts uh, money market funds and their yields um, on these on their funds, and uh, the stress for you know money fund providers is you know the waiver of uh, the expenses of of those funds in order to maintain um, the fund's yield going forward. Um, and I think that um, you know there's various types of um, ways that uh, funds can think about this. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's different things that they're, uh, they're considering. Um, and it's important that um, as uh, sponsors and as board members, uh, that the board really has a handle on the types of options that are available um, to money market funds in order to prevent the, um, the negative yields. Um, and John Luke, I don't know if you want to sort of talk about some of the um, some of the options um, that have been uh, uh, bandied around. There's a variety of them, um, but I think the key is going to be um, that the industry really comes together for for a solution. And I know that there has been a lot of talk at the ICI level um, regarding uh, what to do about negative yields um, or the potential for it, um, as well as discussions um, with the SEC staff. Um, so I don't know if you want to walk through um, the various options that have been um, put forth um, and trying to explain them, but I really do think it's going to come down to sort of a, a consensus as to how, how to deal with this across the industry. Sure. You know, and I think that the, um, 
you know, I think since the, the Fed, um, you know, approved the reduction in, in interest rates and actually double dipped into that, we hit zero. Uh, the industry has been very concerned of a potential for a negative yield situation. Um, you know, because even though the rates are zero and the likelihood um, of, of actually going uh, negative from, from an interest rate perspective is perhaps unlikely, uh, the imposition of expenses really forces the fund into a, a negative yield situation. So the industry uh, has been really trying to think of ways to, uh, to deal with this and they've had discussions amongst themselves and with the ICI in, in the recent months uh, to you know, help maintain uh, a constant NAV and to prevent a negative yield. Now, some of the, the ways to deal with it, I think are varied and they have various implications um, you know, from a tax perspective, operationally uh, and legally. Um, I think the first uh, discussion that I, that I participated in is really you know, is there a potential for an expansion of investment options? Now, I think that the, the type of fund that, that's most likely uh, to be forced into, uh, uh, into dealing with negative yields are perhaps government money market funds uh, due to the fact that they're investing in, you know, short-term uh, lower yielding securities. Uh, and the potential to potentially expand it, expand it beyond uh, actually investing in only 99.5% in government securities, get cash, or repurchase agreements collateralized fully by cash or government securities uh, is, is, is possibly the first stage of discussion. Um, you know, could it be possibly expanded in terms of the, the security types uh, or percentages that they're allowed to invest in? Because realize that 99.5% is actually different than an 80% test that, that most government money market funds would have been required to comply with prior to uh, the 2014 amendments. I think additionally, there's a question of, you know, could there be a relaxation of, uh, of the maturity requirements? So, you know, you have a 60-day weighted average maturity and a 120-day uh, weighted average life. Um, and, and, you know, could in certain times, could that be expanded, uh, you know, to allow for longer-term maturities that would allow the fund to invest in higher yielding securities for that period? So I think that's the first, first consideration. Um, I think now you really get into the options uh, that, that come in, you know, implementing it from an operational standpoint. Um, you know, as we saw uh, with, <clears throat> with 2014, there is a playbook uh, you know, or a blueprint in place for the conversion of a stable NAV fund to uh, a fluctuating NAV fund. And, you know, it, there's a blueprint. We've done it. It took some time in terms of you know, uh, gaining momentum and obviously uh, communicating these things to shareholders. Um, it does present certain problems for suite platforms. And I think that, you know, this option is available, but I think the prevailing thought is, you know, to the extent that you have a, a stable NAV fund that you would like to maintain that constant NAV, stable, stable NAV fund on a going forward basis, but it is an option. Um, another one that's been uh, bantered about really is the daily uh, reverse stock split. 
Uh, and, and this is something that actually popped up in the 2014 SEC FAQs. And, you know, I think one of the questions is, is it legally permissible? Um, I think the SEC's acknowledgement that this, this is a potential option has sparked some interest. Um, the SEC's focus, I should note, in the, in, the SEC, in the FAQ really wasn't on, I guess, the, the legality or permissibility of it, but really whether the implementation of a, of a reverse stock split uh, would technically mask a deviation in stable NAV. Uh, and to the extent that it was material or was, you know, a, a, you know one quarter of 1% as, as would be reported uh, on a um, form NCR, that it actually would, uh, you know, uh, require the filing of a form NCR. So, a but for this occurring, uh, there would be, a, would be a deviation. Um, and, you know, in looking at uh, certain, certain fund documents, you know, it's, it, there's a question of whether it, is it permissible? Is it contemplated under a fund's organizational documents? Uh, is it been communicated to shareholders that this is an option? Um, you know, I think th that's one question. I think operationally, um, you know, do transfer agents and intermediaries have the ability to operationally implement this on a daily basis? And, and that is a question. Um, two other options, which are very similar, uh, but kind of implemented somewhat differently, are a reverse distribution method, also known as a share cancellation. Um, and this was implemented uh, in Europe uh, several years ago. Um, and what this would do would apply a negative uh, daily factor that's applied against account balance, which in effect creates a redemption transaction. And, you know, I indicated that Europe had this, I believe it was, uh, you know, imposed in certain Irish or Luxembourg funds. Um, but, you know, in recent years, the EU and uh, EU money market reform, it, there has been, I guess, less interest and belief that this is compatible uh, with the new regime. Um, you know, there's some question of whether organizational documents contemplate this. And I think that there are some, I guess, IRS questions uh, of the tax implications of this to the extent that we're dealing with potential return of capital situation. Um, and very related to this, uh, although not implemented on, a, on really a, um, a daily basis would be a, a monthly negative dividend factor. So it's very similar to a reverse distribution method, but it would be uh, anticipating negative accruals for the month and applying a negative accrual fee uh, against the balance at month end. Uh, and I think that that has a little bit less traction than RDM, um, but you know, it, it, does, it does remain to be seen you know, how the industry will um, look at these particular options uh, and, you know, I think that you, I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see some combination of these. I think ultimately it will be, um, you know, one method that's, you know, sort of applied across uh, money market funds with buy-in from, uh, you know, the industry, uh, the service providers and intermediaries, because I think it will be some question as to how this can be implemented. Uh, and with that, I, I might turn it over to Claire to talk about some of the board considerations uh, that, that might be had uh, in considering 
uh, several of these options. Sure. Yeah. Th thanks, John Luke. And I, I think I think that's key. The 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 operational aspects of of any of these is going to be critical. Um, because um, you know they haven't been done before, and so you know the back office um, portion of this, um, this uh, communicating with intermediaries um, and working uh, on, on individual share shareholder account level is really going to be um, you know one of the challenging aspects of it. Um, you know, oftentimes you know working with the SEC. Um, and working through your organizational documents and with the board, you know, you can get to a certain place, but if it doesn't work operationally, then, then sort of the, the legal um, and compliance aspects of, of these uh, different mechanisms um, just, just won't fly. Um, but to the extent that there is sort of a consensus in the industry or there's uh, an operational um, breakthrough that would allow one of these um, options to, to be put in place, um, it really comes down then to the board and to the board considering each of these options and looking um, at it from the best interest of the fund um, and shareholders uh, as to one of these me methods. And um, I think that really, uh, takes uh, careful uh, laying of the groundwork with the board, um, working with them to um, help them understand the implications on um, also any conflicts of interest um, shareholders might have um, with that. Um, uh, and so understanding that I think is gonna be very important for boards and sort of being um, getting in ahead of this understanding what a negative um, interest rate environment means for uh, any particular fund um, is, is important. Um, so I think, uh, again, working with the boards, letting them understand this, um, laying out the implications um, for the fund and the shareholder of any particular um, mechanism that's chosen um, is gonna be important for, um, for moving forward on that. Okay, uh, next slide, please. So looking ahead, um, there, you know, we've had the, we're going through this, you know, most recent crisis, you know, sort of this, this crazy March period that we had, um, you know, there was a, there is a, you know, very quick walk from um, uh, prime money market funds into government money market funds. There certainly wasn't a run, but there was definitely a, a quickly, people quickly walking. Um, I, I'd note that in April, we actually saw sort of the reverse. There was a, a movement uh, out of government funds and back into prime funds. So um, you know, the industry and the, and the market uh, for the funds uh, actually sort of stabilized a bit uh, come April. Um, and you know, with the new, with this negative uh, interest rate environment looming, um, sort of, you know, where, where do we go from here? Where does the money fund industry go from here? Um, and I'll turn it back over to John Luke to sort of talk about the first couple bullet points and then, then I'll finish up with, um, with the third one. Sure, thank you, Claire. Um, you know, I think in terms of looking ahead, um, you know, the, as we've kind of covered here, I think that, that funds have been, uh, money market funds have been dealing with this issue, um, you know, for quite some time in terms of, you know, the potential or the specter if you will, of, of negative yield. Um, you know, I think that how they've been dealing with it and how they've dealt with it historically is through, uh, you know, a waiver mechanism. So, 
waivers and reimbursements uh, provided by, you know, the fund advisor or its affiliates, um, you know, have largely, uh, you know, closed the gap and, and prevented the fund from, a, from entering into a negative yielding situation. And I think more of that's likely. I think that, you know, those, I think funds will look to exhaust their ability to, uh, to waive um, waive fees or, or reimburse expenses as long as possible. And, you know, hopefully we don't get into having to deal with these potential options of, you know, um, looking at uh, daily reverse stock splits or, or RDMs or a negative dividend factor. But I do think that, you know, fees uh, and, and fee waivers and expenses, expense reimbursements are, you know, are, are likely on the on the horizon to the extent that interest rates remain low. Uh, I think secondarily, to the extent that we are looking at, um, you know, these uh, the implementation of a, of a reverse stock split or um, a, a share cancellation scheme or RDM. Uh, to the extent that that does come up, I think from a practical standpoint, it's really going to come down to um, you know a consensus or buy-in from from the industry, and by industry I mean the funds uh, from service providers that are will be implementing this, and intermediaries ultimately that are implementing this. Uh, as I don't think that there can be more than one solution, uh, and you know I think that there will be um, ultimately has to be some some guidance uh, from from the SEC as to as to how they expect that this will be implemented uh, and communicated. Uh, to uh, shareholders and potential investors. And uh, at this point, I might ask Claire to share some thoughts about the potential for further 2A7 reform. Yes, because what we, what we need is more regulation. So, um, no, I think, I, I think we can um, expect that there will likely be um, some additional uh, guidance from, uh, from the SEC. Um, around money market funds um, and if that it may take the form of new rules um, it may take the form of some sort of guidance um, from them um, so you're sort of looking at um, you know what are the sort of options I mean at this point the 2010 and the 2014 amendments were significant and structural in nature um, that uh, you know there's there's not a whole lot more um, out there uh, that's going to be new. So we sort of look look to the past to see um, what types of reforms or rule amendments might be on the horizon for um, for money market funds as uh, as a result of um, what happened in March. And during the in, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, the, there was a various industry groups that got created. There was the president's working group. There was um, various other industry uh, groups that got together to to think about uh, what uh, money market fund reform should look like in the wake of the the GFC. Um, so, taking a, a page from that playbook, uh, you know some of the some of the ideas that were on the table at that point, which never made it into the final uh, two phases of reform back then, were that um, all money market funds would have a floating NAV. So there wouldn't have a category of, of stable NAV funds. All, 
all funds would be uh, floating NAV um, uh, money market funds. Um, the concept of regulating money market funds more like a bank entity, um, you know, that was uh, an option sort of uh, bantied around um, back in the uh, GFC um, aftermath. Uh, creating a private emergency liquidity facility uh, for uh, money market funds. So rather than a Fed-based program, it would be a uh, private um, uh, emergency facility uh, that uh, money funds in uh, stress could draw upon um, in, in that regard. And in, in, again, being created by the industry itself and supported uh, as a private uh, option rather than a, a program supported by the Fed. Um, having what's called, uh, you know, have, having each money fund create a so-called capital reserve um, uh, within the fund itself, um, holding back uh, a certain percentage of dividends uh, to be paid out, um, and then make the, that capital reserve available um, when it's needed in times of stress for that fund. Um, so th those were other options. Um, there's obviously tax and accounting um, issues involved um, in the creation of, of such, um, uh, such a capital reserve account. Um, other options that were sort of uh, floated um, back, uh, you know, 10 years ago or more now um, is the concept of sort of a minimum balance at risk option, um, basically limiting the amount um, available uh, to redeem within a 30-day period. Um, so again, sort of preventing um, sort of mass redemptions um, uh, at, at, during any particular period of time. I think the reality is you know, these these options, these concepts for um, for money funds were uh, floated you know twelve years ago, ten years ago, um, and really uh, got rejected uh, by by the industry and by um, uh, you know by the the SEC at the time. I think it's um, unlikely that that any particular one of these would would make its way back um, into the mix as to reforms um, you know there may be some tightening up of um, you know certain additional credit quality um, uh, requirements uh, and um, but I think really things would be more of tweaks around the edges than than real um, fundamental changes at this point um, and I think any sort of significant changes would uh, come with um, significant resistance, um, both from uh, the industry um, for for any further reform. So I think it's, um, again, if we see um, um, further amendments or rule changes, um, I think you can expect another sort of long um, drawn out process uh, to, to implement those. And I also do think any proposals uh, for rule changes will really depend upon the results um, of the election in November. Um, you know, which party is in office, I think will drive um, sort of the, uh, the bus on, on new reforms um, as a result of, of what happened. So uh, I think there's, there's more to come, there's more to see on this. Um, uh, but, you know, for now, um, I think, uh, you know, the, industry is facing um, you know, the, the current crisis um, uh, quite well, uh, dealt with it, um, and now needs to sort of turn its attention to uh, addressing uh, the potential for negative yield. So um, 
that concludes, I think, um, unless um, uh, John Luke, you had any final thoughts to share. No, th that's it. Um, I, I just see if we have any questions, but I, I think that, that that covers it, Claire. Great. Yeah, I didn't see any questions. I don't know if anyone had any questions. Um, you're certainly welcome um, to contact uh, myself or John Luke directly. Um, we are both, uh, probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, we're both partners um, at KNL Gates um, and we work with our uh, money market funds on a uh, daily basis and so are deeply steeped in these issues. So um, to the extent anyone has any questions, um, feel free to follow up with us afterwards. We'd be happy, um, happy to answer any of your questions. So um, I thank you for your time and um, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you very much.